Well, today marks the beginning of Holy Week, Passion Week. And the catalytic event that kind of initiates all of this sequence of events that lead to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And today what I'd like to do is take this old familiar story for us to look at it once again and that God by His Spirit will allow us to marvel more and more at our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His redemptive work on our behalf. So if you're in the 12th chapter of John, I'm going to read verses 12 through 32. Hear the words of the living God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. These are the words of the Lord. Now, this account of the triumphal entry is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And it's interesting what details each of the Gospel writers uh, decide to bring out in their narrative of this particular event. Matthew, in his Gospel, 
provides details of how Christ instructed his disciples on, on, on how to get the donkey's colt, right? How to find it, how to secure it, and how, when someone questions them, how they are to respond. In Matthew's Gospel, there is mention also, just like John's, of the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, which we will look at shortly. It's a messianic prophecy. And he records here that the crowd, in their, in their exclamations of expression from Psalm 118, they call Jesus the Son of David. Mark also, in his Gospel, gives this detailed account of the disciples uh, securing the colt for Jesus and bringing it back and all of the events surrounding that. But Mark doesn't make any mention of Zechariah's particular prophecy. In fact, he records a crowd also expressing praise out of Psalm 118, but he also references this particular expression of the coming kingdom of our father, David. Perhaps, again, the crowd is looking to Jesus as the one who would usher in this, this renewed or restored theocratic Israel. And Luke, in his gospel, also records the events of the securing uh, of the cult uh, for Jesus, but he makes some modifications in this story. He actually scrubs the Hebrew names and titles because he is writing to a Greek-speaking audience. All three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Acknowledge that the crowd saw Jesus' entrance as the fulfillment of the messianic promises and hopes by their declarations that Jesus was the Son of God, that his kingdom would be coming and be established, that he was coming as the king lowly and humble, riding on the colt in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, and envisioning the reemergence of theocratic Israel under the reign of Messiah. These were, events were all seen as a fulfillment of Yahweh's promise and covenant to David that his throne and his kingdom would be established forever under Messiah's reign. But John gives us some other details that the other gospel writers don't. Now his account of the triumphal entry is actually the shortest uh, of all the gospel writers. It's, it's pretty, pretty succinct. He's like, he gets to the point. He actually omits completely this whole aspect of Jesus' instructions to how to go secure a cult. He doesn't even mention that. In fact, all he says is Jesus obtained one, and he rode in on one. That's, that's pretty much it. How he got it, how the disciples got it, did they steal it? You know, No, they didn't steal it. Right? But you can read the other accounts uh, in the other gospel writers, and you can see how that happens. But for John, that's not one of the critical things to address. Though he does... Mention the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, which we will see in just a moment. He records the crowds also crying out that portion of Psalm 118, and they call him the King of Israel. Now what John does that the other gospel writers don't, is he gives us some extended commentary on the reason why such a great crowd had gathered to meet Jesus as he was approaching Jerusalem. Why they were waving the palm branches when he arrived. Now, if you back up a little bit right before this story in chapter 11 of John's gospel, John gives us this understanding of what's taking place. Why was there a crowd with Jesus at Bethany? Why did they come up with Jesus to Jerusalem? We're told that they're there because Jesus had performed a pretty amazing miracle. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Called him out of the grave. And when people heard it, they flocked to Bethany. 
to, to be eyewitnesses of this miracle, to, to put their gaze upon Lazarus who had died and now was alive. Now the chief priests had been plotting to kill Jesus. And when more and more people were believing on Jesus because of the miracle, they determined to not only kill Jesus, but let's go ahead and take care of Lazarus as well. Let, let's silence the, 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 the claims of this maybe being the Messiah. Let's, let's shut Jesus up once and for all. Let's quell any messianic fervor that the people might have. This is not good for business. This is not good for us. They feared losing prominence with Rome. They feared that all the people would be going after Jesus. That's what they were worried about. Jesus was a marked man. A price was put on his head as he made his way to Jerusalem. Now John, in his commentary here, gives us indication that there are two separate crowds, two large crowds. The first crowd was the large crowd that was already there in Jerusalem making preparations for the feast. This was happening at the time of Passover. Now, Jerusalem is, is not a huge place. Okay, it, it was actually a small town, a small city, maybe a few thousand residents. But during the feast, especially during the Passover, the population would swell to some several hundred thousand people. And they would come from all different parts of the Roman Empire, from, from all the ends of the earth. Those who were God-fearing people would come to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Now the second crowd that came up was the one that was with Jesus at Bethany. Okay? That crowd gathered there again because they wanted to see Lazarus. They heard about this miracle. And this crowd was excited. Like they are seeing something amazing before their eyes. In fact, in verse 17, John says that they continue to bear witness to the miracle Jesus had performed. So you can imagine all the way from Bethany, traveling several miles, they are just declaring what Jesus had done. It is difficult for us to even imagine how significant this moment is in the, in the redemptive story. John seems to highlight this as the turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's the hinge event that moves Jesus quickly towards the purpose of his coming, towards the cross. So he devotes a large part of his gospel to the events of this final week of Jesus' life and ministry. Now in verse 18, John tells us that the reason the crowds went out to meet Jesus was that they heard about the sign. Now we, we read that word sign and we just think about the miracle, but in John's gospel, sign is something significant. The sign are indicators that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. It's the sign of his divinity. It's the sign that he is Messiah. Okay? So they had witnessed the sign. They had seen Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they were excited. Could this be the Messiah? Now you and I, I think, would be quite excited if we had witnessed a legit raising from the dead, wouldn't we? Someone you knew had been dead for days, and boop, they pop right out of the coffin. That'd get me pretty excited. That would make me marvel, right? Now, we have a whole bunch of false teachers out there claiming they rose so-and-so from the dead, and 300 people under our ministry rose from the dead, but they have a huge problem. 
Where's the proof? And the proof is, show me the living body that used to be a stone-cold corpse, right? Well, failure to produce that tells me you're a false prophet, you're a false teacher. Yeah, your claims are false. But what did Jesus have that they don't have? The living body of Lazarus that everyone knew was dead, had already been entombed for several days, and Jesus calls him out, and there he is. He lives. That is the unmistakable proof that Jesus was no mere man. Right? This was someone great that was in their midst. Now, the events leading up to and including Jesus' arrival are things that happen as prophetic fulfillment. But they're a little bit more than that as well. They reflect how a king would customarily enter a city. Now again, we don't have a king. We have people who think they're kings. But we don't have a king in this country, right? But think about the ancient times here. A king would conquer an area, a region, and they would come in. Now, they may be coming into their own city, right, where their kingdom is. And as they would, right, crowds would come out to greet the king. Recognizing his position and his status, they would acknowledge that. And the king would be riding upon an animal, typically a like, like a mighty stallion, right? A, a great uh, war steed, or maybe a chariot pulled by powerful horses. And the people would recognize the king. They, he would be greeted with great acclaim. A king that was going to conquer an area would immediately go into the temple and dethrone whatever gods were there, right? Whatever idols were set up. These are the things that happened in the ancient world. Now we have Jesus here riding into Jerusalem as a king. But now, he is not riding an animal that a conquering king would be riding, right? No king would ride a white stallion to conquer an area. That, you know, a donkey, right? They'd be, they'd be on a white stallion. It'd be kind of funny thinking about a king riding on a donkey with a sword in hand, you know, moving kind of slow. I've never ridden a donkey. Maybe you have. I've seen some donkeys. Never rode one. Right? And it's kind of weird for a king to be riding in, but, but this is something prophetic that's taking place here. Okay? This is Jesus fulfilling prophecies. So I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9. All right? So you're going to go left in your Bible. It's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. Go back from Matthew, Malachi, and then Zechariah. Okay? The prophet Zechariah. And there in the ninth chapter of Zechariah, you find this amazing prophecy that Zechariah gives under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's prophesying almost 300 years about the military campaign of Alexander the Great and the great Greek army that was going to be marching and moving towards Palestine all the way through to Egypt. This great army, under the direction of Alexander, is devastating everything in its path. There is destruction everywhere this mighty army goes. And the prophecy begins to show the progression of movement of Alexander downward from the north to the south. It's saying first he's coming to Ashkelon, then to Gaza, then to Ekron. And everywhere this army goes, right, these once mighty and strong nations cannot withstand right, the power of this great army. But this great army is actually meeting out justice from God with exacting judgment upon these nations for what they had done to his people, to Israel. Right? So there's destruction, there's anguish, there's fire. It's a bloodbath. But then you have in verse 8, God says that he's going to surround his people. 
as Alexander is making his way towards the holy city, towards Israel, towards Jerusalem, God is going to surround his people, and these armies are not going to march over them. They will not oppress them. No oppressor will march over them, he says. And that's exactly what happened. This prophecy was fulfilled around 332 B.C. Alexander and his armies make their way to Jerusalem. Alexander actually goes to the temple, and he turns around and leaves in peace. There was no destruction in Jerusalem. God protected his city. He protected the temple. He protected his people. Now the prophecy shifts from this aspect of Alexander and God's protection to the future king of Zion that was to come. Now in Zechariah 9.9, read along with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is amazing. What he's talking about here and prophesying is the supreme royal descendant of David. The one whom God had promised David would come. That his descendant, his son, would sit on a throne that would be established forever and his kingdom would never be removed. And this king would be unlike every other king or any other king. His character would be different. His demeanor would be different from the kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth, right, what do they do when they come to power? They oppress the people. They exploit them. They enslave them. But, but not this king. This king, he says, comes humble and lowly. Look what he's writing, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But he's displaying this perfect balance of power, majesty and meekness, strength and gentleness. And he's riding on a young, a young donkey, not on a warrior's steed. Why is that important? Well, I said a conquering king would not be coming in on a white stallion, but, but royalty did ride on donkeys. And the only time they would typically ride on donkeys was during peacetime. When there was no war. When things were okay. What's the symbolism here? By riding on a donkey, this great king is indicating his complete victory. Right? The war is over. There are no more enemies to conquer. In fact, he proclaims in this prophecy, peace to all the nations. Peace in verse 10. And that his rule would extend from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. This great king that was coming is not coming to enslave. He's not coming to oppress. He is coming to save and deliver. He's coming with salvation. And he's, he's righteous. He's coming to set the prisoners free. He's coming to restore his people. It is a beautiful promise. A beautiful prophetic picture of Messiah, the coming king. And I promise you, everyone there that day at the Passover feast knew this prophecy. They were taught this from little kids. And they could probably recite Zechariah's prophecy here. Right? So when Jesus is coming, knowing what he had done, knowing the miracles, knowing the great sign, they are now shouting the words of Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 in your Bible 
are called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Okay, And all of these psalms would have been sung during Passover. They were singing these psalms during this time. They'd be singing it at the beginning of Passover and during Passover. And here, they're quoting a particular part of Psalm 118. See, they recognize the symbol of, of Zechariah's prophecy, Jesus riding on a donkey. So they're hoping this is that king that's promised there. Psalm 118, 25 and 26. The psalm says, save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, you're like, all right, the word Hosanna is not present there, but it, it is in the Hebrew, okay? At least Hosanna is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew phrase, save us, we pray. Hoshiana in Hebrew, the Greek transliteration is Hosanna, right? It means save us, Lord. Right? Save us. It's a, it's a petition. It's a prayer. It, it's a cry for freedom. It's a cry for deliverance. But, but the way it's used here is not really a prayer. It's a praise. Right? It's an exclamation of praise. Hosanna, and they tag it to Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a praise. It's an exclamation of praise because they're saying, this is him. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecy and all of the prophetic words about the son of David. Right? They're witnessing before their eyes the fulfillment of this prophecy. And that's why the crowd in Jerusalem is, 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 is just riled up. They're stirred up. Read the other accounts and you'll see exactly the whole city was stirred up. Like there was a frenzy, right? It was like a massive you know, mob gathering here. They were expecting this to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. The problem we know is the kind of king they were expecting and the kind of king that showed up on the donkey were not the same, were they? What they were expecting in that moment was the promised conquering king. But scripture always showed them and told them that no, the suffering servant would come first. Then the conquering king but they wanted the conquering king. They wanted the restoration of theocratic Israel. They wanted their Roman oppressors cast out and overthrown. They wanted to see Israel come back to the place of prominence where God was ruling and the temple was the center again of all of life. That's what they wanted. And that's why they waved palm branches. Right? We think of palm branches and we're like, oh, palm trees are the most annoying things to me. I Baseball trees. I wish they would all be cut down to the ground. I hate having them on around my house as well, right? But palm branches in those days were actually like flags, right? They were the symbol of nations, right? So when you read them waving palm branches here, picture someone waving the stars and stripes, okay? like a national flag. There was something really powerful happening here. Remember, they wanted. Uh, a restoration of political power to the Jews. They wanted theocratic Israel again here. So waving palm branches, right, and declaring Jesus to be king was a supreme treasonous act. Okay? Like Rome would be really ticked off if this event continues. It's one of the reasons the religious leaders wanted to quell this. They didn't want any trouble. 
But they were scared of the crowd because of their zeal and their fervor and their proclamation of Jesus as king. So it's a big deal that's happening here. And John wants us to know their motivations. He wants us to know their reasoning because the reality is now we have a shift and we have some some dialogue from Jesus on this event. Now in some of the other gospel writers account, the event that comes right after this is Jesus going into the temple. And flipping some tables and going all Indiana Jones and whipping and slashing and thrashing, right? We love that. But but John's giving us a different flavor here. There, there were some other events that took place. And all the gospel writers, they, you know, they're they're recalling to mind what they heard and what they saw. There, there's no contradiction in the uh, the events as they unfolded, right? But everyone remembers a different component, a different piece of this. And John's giving us some very important things that Jesus says here. Now, we have the large crowd. We have the crowd that followed Jesus. But there's also another group that John highlights here. And that's the disciples. The disciples that were with Jesus. The disciples should be looked at differently from the crowd. These were the ones that were with Jesus, following Jesus. We would assume there were more than 12, okay? But it certainly includes the 12, right? But they were with Jesus here. And John makes note in verse 16 that as they're observing these events, they don't understand what's taking place. They don't grasp the symbology here. They don't grasp the prophetic things that are happening at the moment. They don't perceive them. In the the thick of the events, right, and what's happening, and there's the crowd, they're like, Wow, this is nuts. But they don't get the significance. But it says that that the aha moment comes later. When Jesus was glorified, it's like a light bulb clicked on and they're like, whoa, that's what was happening there. That's why he rode in on a donkey. Yeah, Zechariah 9. That's why he did what he did. That's why those things took place. And in, in retrospect is when they actually realized what was taking place, realizing the prophetic fulfillment that was happening before their eyes, right? As these scenes flooded back into their minds, they remember. And they go, this this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, we can't miss the main character here, though, right? We got the crowds, we got the disciples, and we have Jesus. We have Jesus. The crowds here, they're caught up in this nationalistic fervor. They're caught up with with these hopes, right? These aspirations that this might be the political savior we're looking for. The the, the disciples, they don't know what's going on. They don't understand it in the moment, but they're caught up in all of this as well. Then we have Jesus, who fully understood what was taking place. Who fully knew what was going on. And the symbol of his triumphant entry now is the sign, the signal, that his hour had come. His hour had come. That's what he said. Now John uses this phrase several times in his gospel. We don't really find it with the frequency we have here. The first time is with the account of the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where Jesus declares that his hour had not yet come. Chapter 7, chapter 8, Surrounding events where, where there were those who wanted to arrest Jesus and were not able to. It says that they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. What is his hour? What is that of the hour? Now it's not time. It's not chronological time that it's talking about here. 
It's talking about a summary of the events here of this particular final week. All of the events, the timing of the events as they culminate in this final week. His arrest, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Those events summarize his glorification. It's what he says in verse 23. His hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. When you think of the events here of this ride into Jerusalem, there is one shadow that looms large over all of this. And it's the shadow of the cross. Verse 27, we get this expression of Jesus' emotional state in his humanity. He says, now is my soul troubled. It's a profound statement. Why is his soul troubled? How could Jesus' soul be troubled? Isn't he also God? How could his soul be troubled or distressed or turmoiled? Well, the hour had come. The hour that was coming was Gethsemane. An hour of agony and anguish. Soon, he would experience the unimaginable suffering as he is tortured. Soon, he would be abandoned by his disciples. Soon, the weight of our sin would be laid upon him. Soon, he would bear the full wrath of the Father in place of sinners. And soon, he would face the moment where his Father would turn his face away and he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's troubled. His soul is troubled. And he asked a question that's really a rhetorical question. My soul's troubled, but what should I do? Should I, should I pray for the Father to save me from this hour? To let this hour pass by without me going through the agony that I'm about to experience? No. How can I do that? Look what he says here. It is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. What a powerful and profound thing in reality here. This hour was not God's reaction to the fall. It was not God's reaction to the sin of mankind. It is what God purposed from before the foundation of the world. To slay the Son for our sin. It is for this hour. This is my purpose. This is why I am here. And knowing the Father's will, in full submission to His will, He resolves to continue His march to Calvary. And what drove Him, brothers and sisters, what drove Him through this anguish of soul, this troubling of His soul, was His commitment to the Father's glory. It was the highest motivation of his life that the Father would be glorified and that's exactly what he petitions the Father for. Not to save him from the hour. Not to let it pass by him. Not that there would be another way, an easier way, an alternative, a shortcut. He said, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. What do we have? The Father responding. Only three times in Scripture do we have the Father respond. During Christ's baptism, during His transfiguration, 
and here in this moment. Where the audible voice of the Father is heard. Now those around him, all they heard was like thundering. Or this is like the voice of an angel from heaven. They, they didn't know what it was, but his Father responds. And what is his response? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That, that thundering voice, that response from the Father is a, another ac- exclamation point affirming Jesus' divinity. And it's done for the benefit of the disciples. Jesus said, that wasn't for me, guys. I hear the Father's voice all the time. This is for you. This was done for your sake. It's the Father placing his stamp of approval upon the redemptive work that Christ has entered into on their behalf. On the disciples' behalf, on our behalf. That's his purpose. That's the purpose of this hour that Jesus willingly entered into. He went into Jerusalem knowing what was going to take place. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew what was coming. This was not a surprise to him. But this hour also represents something powerful that Jesus mentions here. Now, sometimes when we ask people, why did Jesus come? Immediately, our responses center around our sin. And rightly so, right? Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to deliver us and rescue us. Jesus came to forgive our sins. And that is right and true. But Jesus doesn't mention that here. Jesus reflects here that this hour represents a spiritual victory. He emphasizes Judgment. A certain kind of judgment that is imminent because the hour is now. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There is immediacy of that judgment. In fact, the indication here that that, that this is happening before Jesus' death. (coughs) This judgment here, because the hour had come... Is imminent, it is here, it has arrived, the world is judged, and the ruler of this world is also judged. What is this all about? Well, think about from the fall forward how mankind has been plunged into darkness. Mankind has been under the sway of the evil one because of man's willful sin and rebellion against the holy God. So we have an enemy who has plundered the human race, who has enslaved humanity, and he's declared himself the ruler of this world. Now, he's an illegitimate ruler. God is the ruler of this world, truthfully and truly. But Jesus does call him the ruler of this world. We do have a sin problem. We are dead in our trespass and sin. But what does that happen? That is a symptom of something far deeper. But the reality that Jesus unveils here is that we also need to be delivered and freed from something else. We are also in bondage to the evil one. We are in his grip. We are slaves to sin. We are not born free. We are not born with a desire to love God. We are not born with a desire to serve God, to follow Him, and to love Jesus Christ with all of our heart. That is not how we're born. We are born in this nature of sinfulness and slavery. Right? So what is Jesus saying here? We need to be set free. 
We need to be loosed from His grip. Those chains that enslave us need to be snapped off of us. And that's what Jesus came to do. John declares this in his, in his epistle in 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Look at this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And isn't that what we find Jesus doing in his ministry? Destroying the works of the devil. We see him expelling demonic forces with a word. Spirits, evil spirits that had troubled and tormented souls for who knows how long. And with a word of command, they come out. What do we see him doing but healing those afflicted by horrible diseases? Those tormented in spirit and soul are liberated. He declared that he came to set the captives free. And how does he do that? By destroying the works of the devil. He has stripped the enemy of his power. He has stripped the enemy of his power over those whom he has come to redeem and liberate. Colossians 1.13, Paul writes, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has power of death. That is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what he came to do. This is what's happening during this hour. Judgment on the world. Judgment on the ruler of the world. Why? Because Jesus is coming to liberate the captives. He's coming to set us free. The world, why is the world judged? Well, the world hates Jesus. Who crucified Jesus? If not the people of the world. The world hates Him. Make no mistake about it. They hate Jesus. Where Jesus is, is uh, praised by the world, it's only because they see Jesus as this nice, meek, humble Jesus who loves everybody and never condemns anybody and never judges anybody. It's a false Jesus, but it's the Jesus that's propped up and that's the Jesus everyone likes. But Jesus says, now is the world judged. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. The world treats sin as a trivial matter, a light thing, if they want to even call it a sin at all. It's usually a mistake. It's usually an environmental condition that we succumb to or something someone else does to us. But sin is what is enslaving us and binding us to the enemy. The world sought to kill Jesus, and they thought they had. Satan, who held sway over the world, thought he had succeeded in killing the Son of God. But what happens, right? The cross, the world is judged. And the ruler of this world is overthrown. Jesus, in, in Colossians 2.15, tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and shamed them by triumphing over them in the cross. Our enemy has been disarmed. 
Our enemy has been defanged. He's been dethroned. He has been defeated. This is what the hour brings about. But there's more. There's more to what this hour signifies. Look what Jesus says. After saying that this judgment has come on the world and the rule of this world being cast out, he says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What is happening here? The cross, right? There's, there's a double meaning here, right? Him being lifted up is obviously the cross and being lifted up on the cross, but also on the other side of this as he is exalted and glorified and lifted up. The cross has the power to draw sinners to Christ and reconcile them to God. All those whom the Father draws to Christ will be saved. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father draw him. This is the drawing work of the Father as Jesus is lifted up to come to him. The hour not only reveals God's righteous judgment of the world and our enemy, but also God's gracious power to draw men and women to Christ. To draw men and women into relationship with the Father. Now, we're going to define all. We've had to do that in Timothy, right? We read all. We know that's not every single person in the world because not all are saved. Right? But it means all kinds of people will be drawn to Christ. And how do I know it means all kinds of people? Again, we read the context of what's happening here. What is the prophetic significance of this moment? Let's look in context at the events that have transpired here. Okay? The promise of Scripture has always been that salvation would radiate outward from the Jews to the rest of the world, right? To the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Everybody else. Everyone who's not a Jew, right? Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, right? It would start with Israel and they would proclaim this to the world, they would be a light to the world. Now we know they failed dismally, right? But that was always the intention here. And God's offering of peace would be to the whole world, to the nations of the world. Starting with his covenant with Abraham. What did he say to Abraham? He promised that Abraham's seed, right, in his seed, right, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just one nation, not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. Genesis 22. In Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3, Isaiah prophesies, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This isn't about one people. This isn't about one ethnic group. This isn't about one nation. This is the nations of the world. God declares to Hosea that those who were formerly called not my people would now be called my people. And they would begin to declare that God is their God. Then look at what we have the Pharisees declaring here in verse 32. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now there were a bunch of fools and they were rejecting Jesus. But what a prophetic statement. The whole world has gone after him. And in this moment, what do we have? We have people from all these different nations of the world in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, and they're all calling him king. That's the prophetic picture in view here. Then we have this little tidbit of information that just seems out of place in the story here. I don't know if you picked up on it there. Uh, in the story here, in verse 20, 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Why is that there? Well, who are the Greeks? Who are the Greeks? Gentiles. Why are they there? They're there for the Passover. They're there for the feast. But what do they want to see? We wish to see Jesus. They were there with the crowd declaring him to be the king. They They were there seeing him as the fulfillment of these messianic promises and hope. And they want to have audience with Jesus. Greeks are very rarely mentioned in the Bible. But you go back to Zechariah 9, you'll find the Greeks mentioned in Zechariah 9. And it's interesting that John includes this little element here in the story to kind of show us what's happening here. The world is indeed going after Jesus. He will draw people from all nations to himself. And that little element here of the Greeks coming to see Jesus and then Philip and Andrew go tell Jesus. Now, Jesus, we don't have any, any indication here that Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and bring them on in. Let me talk to them. He actually launches into this little short parable now, which is, what? Well, what does he say here? Jesus answers them, right? What does he say? The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This, this event here of Greeks coming to seek out Jesus is another sign that triggers the reality of the time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he gives this little parable here about him being a grain of seed being planted in the ground and how when that seed goes into the ground it dies. Why? So that it can bear fruit. And that's prophetic of what's happening with Jesus. He's going to be planted in the ground, into the grave. He's going to die. And when he rises to to new life, then we also rise to new life in him. His death and his resurrection brings forth the fruit uh, of eternal life. It's a beautiful thing that's happening here. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, Paul writes, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what's happening. The hour is coming now. The Son of Man is going to be lifted. And when He's lifted up, He's going to draw all manner of people to Him. It's not just the Jews. Sorry, guys. It's everyone. Right? All nations. All people. All tribes. All tongues. Right? That's what's happening here. This is why Jesus rides into Jerusalem. This is why He marches triumphantly to His suffering and death. The Son of Man came to bring righteous, God's righteous judgment upon the world and His judgment upon the evil one. Jesus is going to strip the evil one of all the power He has held over mankind in this hour in order that through His death and resurrection we might be set free. He endures the agony of the cross and anguish of soul for our sake. He bears our guilt and shame. He secures our freedom and redemption. And His death and resurrection has snapped the chains which the enemy has held us in captivity. We can walk in freedom of life now. And we can sing that familiar stanza from Behold the Throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upwards I look and see Him there who made an end to all 
my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Praise God for that. So if your soul is troubled today, look to Christ. Look upon him who suffered for your sake. Look upon him whose nail-pierced hands were stretched on the cross for your redemption, for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you would be raised to life when he was raised from the grave. Our king has come triumphantly. He has come humbly and gently offering salvation and redemption and forgiveness and grace. Do not miss the time of your visitation, brothers and sisters. Today is the day of salvation. This is not something to put off. This is not something to trifle with and toy with and and, and, and wonder if, if, if Jesus is who he said he is. Yes. He is. He is the triumphant king. So look to him for salvation. Trust in him. Believe upon him. The spirit of the Lord is the one who draws you to Christ. And He's drawing you today. Receive Him. And may we, like Christ, pray, Father, glorify Your name. And in Christ, He is glorified fully and completely as we are the redeemed of the Lord and raised to life in Christ Jesus.